Good afternoon, I'm Brent Holland. Welcome to today's show. For millennia, mankind has looked at the sky and wondered, are we alone? Well, folks, this afternoon, we just may get an answer to that. Roswell, New Mexico, 1947. Conflicting reports are abound of an alien spacecraft crash and alien bodies spewed around. Our guest this afternoon, legendary Canadian researcher Stanton Friedman, is going to tell us the story of Roswell in his own words. Stanton Friedman. In 1984, I received a roll of film in the mail on which there were two sets of eight negatives each of a briefing for President-elect Eisenhower dated November 24, 1952. And it says that in 1947, President Truman established this group called Operation Majestic 12 because of what happened at Roswell. He said a saucer crashed, bodies were recovered, it was advanced technology from somewhere else. They named the members of the team, two Army, two Air Force, two Navy, scientists and the first Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal. This afternoon, the father of Roswell, Stanton Friedman, right now on Brent Holland. Folks, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with the one, the only, Stanton Friedman. This afternoon, we're going to be discussing Roswell. Now, I hear you all right now. Roswell, what has that got to do with the Brent Holland Show? Take a listen. This is part of our history, folks. It's really important stuff, and I believe it's true. Stanton, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. I was wondering if you could tell us, in your own words, the story of Roswell. It's fairly straightforward in terms of my involvement. Uh, I'd been lecturing about flying saucers since 1967. I provided written testimony to congressional hearings in 1968, and in 1970 went full-time on the UFO scene. In the early 1970s, a friend and I, Bobby Ann Slate Geronda, we heard about a forest ranger who had had a good sighting. It was a good case. I mean, they were out in the woods there looking up a lot of the time. And uh, as we finished, he said, you know, you really ought to talk to my mom. She had a great sighting near Albuquerque. Okay, so we got his mother's name, Lydia Sleppy, so we called her. And she told us about her sighting. As she finished that, she mentioned that she was working at a radio station in Albuquerque. And they got a call from their Roswell affiliate. The guy had a story to tell, and he wanted somebody to uh, take it down. And she was not a journalist. She worked in accounting, actually. She was a very good typist. The 
Albuquerque station could put things on the newswire, and the Roswell station couldn't. So he's telling her that there was a crash flying saucer outside Roswell, and that the government was going to send the wreckage up to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And she's busily typing this in, and then suddenly a bell goes off on the machine and uh, discontinue this transmission, FBI. And she asked the guy on the other end in Roswell, what should I do? He said, stop. <laughs> she did. Now, I should maybe explain that New Mexico had more classified work going on than any other state, really, per capita. Two of the three nuclear weapons labs in the United States were in New Mexico, White Sands Missile Range was there. We were firing a captured German V-2 rockets. Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque was the largest employer in the state of New Mexico. Roswell was the home of the only atomic bombing group in the entire world. So you'd expect there'd be spies around it. The FBI would be paying attention. Anyway, she tried to recall the names of various people, and I followed it up briefly. I found a couple people who didn't remember much, and I came to a, a dead end. Okay, so you file it away. I don't know what's going on here but we'll see if we ever hear anything more. In 1978, I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I was on a lecture tour, and I was to speak at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, and somebody from the university had brought me to the local big television station, and I was supposed to do three interviews to promote the lecture that night. And I had done two of them, and the third reporter was nowhere to be found. This is before cell phones, you know, and the station manager, Bill Allen, is giving me coffee. He's looking at his watch. He's embarrassed. He knew the person who brought me to the station. She knew I had other things to do, and he's wondering, where the heck is our reporter? And out of the blue, he says, you know, the guy you ought to talk to is Jesse Marcel. Now, brilliant investigator that I am, I said, who's he? <laughs> and his response really got me going. He said, oh, he handled wreckage or one of those saucers you're interested in when he was in the military. What? What do you know about him? Well, he lives over in Homa. Then the reporter showed up. Okay, so I'm still curious, but I'm busy. Gave the lecture. Next morning from the airport, called information. Is there anybody named Jesse Marcel? And they gave me his number. I called. And I mentioned this story, and he told me his story. Now, I have to point out here that Jesse Marcel's name appeared all over the place, I found out later. He could hardly deny that he was involved. I mean, front page of major evening papers from Chicago West on July 8th, 1947. So he told me a story. He didn't have an exact date, and I knew the summer of 47 was a very big time for UFO sightings. This was after Kenneth Arnold's sighting on June 24th, 47 just a couple of weeks before, as it turns out. So, okay, you file the information, and then I'm at a lecture in Bemidji State College. After the lecture, a couple comes up to me and says, you ever hear anything about a crash saucer in New Mexico? Well, yes, I have. Tell me more. And they told me the story of Barney Barnett. And to jump forward just a bit, it wasn't the same crash, but it was the same time. He was an engineer, civil engineer, working for the Soil Conservation Service and mainly concerned with making sure there was enough water, reservoirs and places like that. And this couple gives me the name of Barney Barnett's niece. He was dead. It's his wife's niece, Ruth, and where she lived. And I passed that on the very next day to Bill Moore, whom I had known in Pittsburgh when we both lived there uh, Okay, Bill had a third story 
from an English actor, Huey Green, and he was driving across the country from Los Angeles to Philadelphia, where he lived, and heard on the radio about a crash flying saucer in New Mexico. Now, he expected there'd be a big fuss when he got to Philadelphia, and there wasn't any. But he could pin down the date because it wasn't a trip he made very often. You can imagine what the roads were like back in 47. It was early July 1947. So Bill goes to the University of Minnesota Library, periodicals department, starts looking, there's the story. Jesse's name is mentioned and all kinds of other people's names are mentioned and it confirmed what he had said. And that started a year and a half's worth of searching. Bill and I, between us, were spending hundreds of dollars a month on telephone calls. Like I said, it was before the internet. We managed to locate 62 individuals connected with the case. Sometimes it was lucky, sometimes we just persisted and went from one person to another. For example, early on, I looked an editor and publisher, which lists newspapers from all over the place, and, oh, Roswell's got a paper. I call a paper, and I tell them, I say, I've got this article here, and it mentions that the base public information office, I didn't know the base had been closed in the 60s, a guy named Walter Hot Hout, his name is spelled four different ways in the news stories we had, and before I could finish the sentence, she says, oh, his wife works here. What? You don't expect the GI station in a small town in 1947 to still be there in 1978. But he was. And I talked to his wife. Then I talked to Walter, who was a tower of strength in the community, very well respected and so forth. And he had a base yearbook, and he knew Jesse Marcel. That began our search. And Bill and I found 62 people in the next year and a half. And our research was reported in the book, The Roswell Incident. My name isn't on the authorship, but I got a percentage of the royalties. It was Charles Berlitz and Bill Moore. And we kept going, looking. That was 1980. By 1986, we had found 92. Then I instigated the Unsolved Mysteries program about Roswell. I had a call back three times, finally caught the person I was after, arranged to see her when I was in California, made a pitch that she ought to do a program about Roswell. Are there people who haven't been interviewed? Yes, quite a few. To make a long story short, they did the show. They did it properly. Their producer came out to visit everybody who was going to be on the show to pick their brains, find out what they knew, and then bring them all in together into Roswell so they could be interviewed for a sensible show. It was seen by 28 million people. This is before... Well, that's before cable show stations were big, you understand. And when it ran the second time in January of 1990, this was 89 the first time, it was seen by 30 million people, their highest rating ever for Unsolved Mysteries. Folks, we're speaking with Stanton Friedman today, and we're talking about Roswell, of course. Now, Stanton Friedman, if you've ever seen anything on UFOs, he's the handsome guy, as I like to say, with the glasses and the beard, the good-looking fella. Now... Stanton is also a nuclear physicist. Make no mistake about Stanton's credentials. This is the real deal, folks. He's the real deal. He is known as the father of Roswell, and that's what we're discussing today. That crash that took place in the New Mexico desert. Back to Stanton. The thing is that we've kept up our research, and I do bring to bear a couple of special qualifications on the whole UFO scene. One, I've worked under security for 14 years. I've been to 
20 document archives, presidential libraries, national archives, etc. I know about classified documents. I know how security works. I wrote classified documents myself. I get upset at people who say you can't keep secrets. These are people who've never held clearances and don't understand how the system works and the need to know and all that sort of thing. The second thing is a major objection by nasty, noisy negativists, as I like to call them when I'm being polite, is you can't get here from there, so this whole thing is nonsense. There can't be aliens coming here. It would violate the laws of physics and more garbage like that. Now, I worked on nuclear fission rockets. We tested them successfully on the ground back in the 60s, mind you. The largest one, which was all of seven feet in diameter, the reactor, these are liquid hydrogen cooled, comes in cold and goes out to very hot to more than 4,000 degrees. The largest one was built by Los Alamos National Laboratory, and uh, it produced 4,400 megawatts. That's twice the power of Grand Coulee Dam. It was Ooh. seven feet in diameter. That was tested out uh, not far from Area 51 at the nuclear test site. I also worked on fusion rockets. I want to focus on fusion for a minute. That's how the stars make their energy is nuclear fusion. You know, there's no secret about that, as we Earthlings would be expected to do. We built a device in 1952. We successfully tested Mike. It was an H-bomb, a fusion weapon. It produced the energy equivalent to blowing up 10 million tons of TNT. Oh. 10 million tons. The fireball was three miles wide. The Russians built a bigger one, 57 million tons. Now, to give you something to compare that with, during World War II, the big bombs were 10-ton blockbusters that B-29s carried them. 10 tons. We're talking 10 million tons. So what I'm saying is fusion isn't an imaginary process invented by science fiction writers. It's real world. If you use the right stuff in the right way, you can create charged particles, which is good because you can direct them with electric and magnetic fields. You can send them out the back end of a rocket with 10 million times as much energy per particle as they can get in a dumb old chemical rocket. 10 million times. Wow. So when people start telling me, oh, you can't get here from there. Look how long it would take. Our fastest rocket would take us 75,000 years to get to the nearest star. And how long does it take you to walk from New York to San Francisco? Or would you prefer to fly? You know, you'd think that technology stands still. My mantra is that technological progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way. During the war, we had big aircraft carriers. They burn a lot of fuel and they store a lot of fuel for the other ships that are with them because fuel diesel fuel oil uh, it doesn't provide a lot of energy per pound we now have nuclear fission powered aircraft carriers that can operate for 18 years without refueling Remember, those aircraft carriers can carry maybe 75 little airplanes that can run for, what, an hour, two hours, you know, on mm. fuel. And I make that analogy for a reason. When people say, well, an alien spacecraft couldn't have crashed at Roswell, come here from way out there and then crash, balderdash. What we're talking about, motherships come here from out there to the vicinity of the solar system, and a little Earth excursion modules go tootling along. They're two different environments. Between the stars, there's nothing. And when you get near a planet, you get a 
a big gravity field, you got an atmosphere, you have to worry about heating, pressure, weather, all kinds of stuff. So what crashed at Roswell and their other crash sites was not an alien mothership fresh here from Zeta Reticuli, my favorite star system for saying where they might be coming from. So what I'm getting at is that I am disgusted when I find that otherwise smart people say stupid things about technology and especially getting here from the stars when they haven't done their homework. Now, the analogy to some show the idea of how much effort it takes. When I worked on nuclear airplanes between 1956 and 1959, I was at General Electric Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Department just outside Cincinnati. And the idea was, for the same reason as the aircraft carriers, you could fly the craft for thousands of hours without refueling. And in 1958, we spent $100 million. We employed 3,500 people full-time, of whom 1,100 were engineers and scientists. We did operate jet engines on nuclear power. We didn't build any nuclear-powered airplanes. But the point is, it wasn't six professors and 20 grad students. We're talking a massive effort involving lots of money and lots of talented people. And it wasn't done in a university. Now, I stress that because had somebody say to me, well, Roswell couldn't have happened. If it had, there'd have been professors leaving academia all over the place to work and finding out what's going on. And I said, that's balderdash for this simple reason. We already had a huge number of installations that had high security clearances, involved lots of very talented professionals people. They were set up during the Manhattan Project and during World War II. The three nuclear weapons labs, Sandia, Lawrence Livermore, and Los Alamos, each had a budget that year of more than a billion dollars. Each employed more than 8,000 people. Oh my goodness. Uh, and they had some of the finest equipment in the world. I've been to all three of these. There is Oak Ridge National Laboratory. There is a Hanford Works. And there's a whole bunch of other places. You need three things. If you're going to have work done, you find a crash flying saucer, you're going to send pieces out to the finest labs in the country that have an appropriate security clearance and the best people and the best equipment and they have to have it now not six months from now joe will get a clearance and maybe he can help us but those people existed and the people who had been involved in the manhattan project most of which was done in new mexico incidentally knew where all the smart guys were can i just interrupt you for a sec stanton sure a lot of the folks listening right now don't know what the manhattan project is so i'm just going to tell you folks that was the project to bring about fat boy and little man those were the bombs that were dropped Japan to end the war. Atomic bombs. Yeah, they also built another bomb that was tested in secret, strange as that might sound, on the Trinity site in New Mexico. That went off on July 16th, 1945. That was a great success, the equivalent of, uh, oh, 15,000 tons of TNT exploding. And it was seen from 100 miles away. Uh, and so people were calling the sheriff's office and police departments what happened. It was 5.30 in the morning, but a lot of Mexicans get up early, avoid the heat, and so Two days later, an article appeared in the paper, an ammunition dump had blown up, and fortunately, nobody was injured. Roughly three weeks, four weeks later, after we bombed Hiroshima and Nagasaki, then they found out what it was. Talk about keeping secrets. 
Huh. I should tell folks who we're speaking to. Folks, we're speaking to the one, the only Stanton Friedman. Stanton Friedman, for all of you that are familiar with Stanton, is a Canadian. He has an American citizenship and, of course, a Canadian citizenship, and he lives down in New Brunswick now. We're talking about Roswell. He is the father of Roswell. You've seen him before on Larry King. You've seen him before in all the videos and documentaries about Roswell. As I love to say, he's the good-looking guy with the glasses and the beard. Most importantly are his authentic credentials. He is indeed a nuclear physicist. He knows the science. He's done the research. This is the real deal today, folks, living history. Thanks for letting me interrupt you again, Stanton. That's Please. right. But the Roswell story, the latest development, which I'm really looking forward to, is that a couple of Hollywood people have taken the option on my life story, as well as that of Don Schmidt. And he's a Roswell researcher. My focus has been on the Majestic 12 documents. And they want to tell a story called Magic Men about the ups and downs of trying to get to the truth about Roswell, about the Majestic 12 documents, about UFOs in general. We hope it'll be a movie that's well, sort of a combination of all the president's men and JFK. <laughs> we're, we're talking about who's going to play me, you know, Richard Dreyfus, Brad Pitt with a beard and glasses. I've just published book number five called Science Was Wrong with Kathleen Marden, Betty Hill's niece. We did book number three as well, captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. In the new book, we each did seven. Mine is on UFOs. Hers is on abductions, as you might expect. <laughs> She's quite an expert, trained in social work and sociology and stuff. But there's a message, and that is that be very careful when highly credentialed people say stupid things about impossibility of doing this, that, or the other thing. The history of science is littered with such pronouncements. For example, the Astronomer Royal in England in 1956 told Time magazine that space travel was utter bilge. Sputnik went up a year later. Everybody knew Mars was totally dry, never had any water. Well, that's not true. But Billy Mitchell, there was a guy with guts, Colonel Mitchell, he flew in the First World War. And after the war, was speaking out, aviation was going to change the way wars were fought. You'd be able to sink ships from the air. And he was practically laughed out of town. The Secretary of the Navy said, I'll stand on any ship he's going to bomb, you know, that kind of thing. On November 29th, 1941, there was the annual Army-Navy football game. And the program for the game had a picture of the USS Arizona, major monstrous battleship, and included the statement that nobody had ever sunk a battleship from the air. Eight days later was Pearl Harbor. The Arizona was sunk by bombs dropped from the air and 1,100 people died. In other words, there's a price to pay when bullheadedness coming out of position and education sometimes stands in the way of doing what needs to be done. Folks, we're speaking with Stanton Friedman. We're talking about Roswell. And he's just given us a very clear demonstration of resistance to change, I would say, and how people like to hang on to convention and not explore new possibilities. Stanton Friedman, of course, nuclear physicist himself. You've seen him in all the documentaries on UFOs. He's the handsome guy, as I like 
like to say, with glasses and a beard. And rumor has it in his upcoming biography movie that George Clooney will indeed play him. Hey, that's a good idea. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) You would mention Majestic 12. A lot of the folks listening now have no idea what that is. Could you tell them just well, briefly okay. what it is, and then we'll come back to Roswell. Okay. Well, it's directly related, you might say. It uh, is. In 1984, my colleague William Worm, I mentioned earlier, uh, and Jamie Chandra received a roll of film in the mail on which there were two sets of eight negatives each. It's a briefing for President-elect Eisenhower, dated November 24th, 1952. He was elected two weeks earlier, but he wouldn't take office till January 1953. It's a briefing for him about Majestic 12. And it says that in 1947, September, President Truman established this group called Operation Majestic 12, whose job it was to look at the technology and the intelligence aspects, all aspects of the UFO scene because of what happened at Roswell. He said a saucer crashed, bodies were recovered, it was advanced technology from somewhere else. They named the members of the team. There were 12 people. There were two Army, two Air Force, two Navy, five scientists, and the first Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal. It mentioned that a saucer had crashed and so forth, and it listed some attachments. The only one we have is a letter from Truman to Forrestal. You are hereby authorized to proceed with Operation Majestic Cloud. Now, the kicker here was uh, there were several kickers. A, so what proof do we have that these are legitimate documents? We don't even have paper to check, just a roll of film. Secondly, one of the 12 people, one of the scientists, was somebody who surely shouldn't have been on this group. This is Dr. Donald Menzel, a Harvard University professor of astronomy. Now, all the others, when you do some checking, you find had high-level security clearances, uh, obviously belonged, we know from their activities during the war. But Menzel was a Harvard astronomer. You don't need a high-level security clearance to teach astronomy at Harvard. So we were very wary about going public with this. We started to do a lot of checking. And I've written a whole book, Top Secret Magic. One of the high points was finding, much to my surprise, I'd had a run-in with Menzel and didn't like him. I invited him to a lecture I was giving at Harvard. You can't be a scientist and believe in flying saucers. He said, I left. He got mad. So he started ranting. So finding his name on a list, well, I ran across some things at the Library of Congress Manuscript Division, uh, which raised some questions about Mendel and how to get written permission from three different people to look at his papers at Harvard. When I got to Harvard, there was a file, Menzel and JFK. Turns out Kennedy had been on the board of overseers of Harvard, and that's how he knew Menzel and astronomy was his area of interest, and Menzel was a great admirer and so forth. Anyway, in his letters to JFK, Menzel said, when we're properly cleared to each other, I can give you more information about the major organization called the National Security Agency. I've had a longer continuous association with them than anybody else 30 years at this time as it happens. And he turns out he had a top secret ultra clearance with the CIA, classified work for 30 companies. He led a double life that nobody on the outside knew about. Well, as you can imagine, this made it much more likely that these documents were genuine because who the heck knew about this, you know? So I pursued it, found uh, all kinds of connections between the members, even earned myself a $1,000. A guy named Philip Klass, who was the noisiest negativist of them all, an avionics reporter in Washington for Aviation Week, challenged me on one of the documents which we found in the National Archives. The typeface was wrong, he said. It is the large 
FICA type. Perhaps he didn't notice that. But it should have been the small elite type. I have nine documents from the National Security Council, all done in the elite type. And I challenge you to provide any other genuine documents. I'll give you $100 each, up to a maximum of 10 for every genuine document that you can provide. And it turns out he had never been to the Eisenhower Library. I spent weeks there. So I took him up on the offer. And I went to my files and immediately found 20 documents done in FICA type. But I went to the library, picked up 14, sent him copies, and an invoice for $1,000, because that was a limit. And he paid me. Told everybody about challenging me and nobody about paying me. <laughs> and got very angry when I included a copy of his check in a report. <laughs> but here's the crazy part. The Eisenhower Library alone is 250,000 pages of National Security Council. That's the highest advisory body to the president, and I use them greatly. To suggest that you can generalize from nine to 250,000 is absurd. None of the attacks stand up, and there are still people making claims. Friedman's the only one who thinks these documents are genuine, but nobody has trumped my aces. I found somebody who worked for Truman the entire time he was in the White House. I sent him copies of the documents and called him and suddenly realized, hey, if he knows anything, he can't tell me, so I better ask questions he can answer. None of the documents genuine. But did you see anything about the documents you thought indicated they were fraudulent? That he could answer. How about the people? You knew Truman well. You have any reason to think that if something like a crash saucer had occurred, that he wouldn't have named this one or that one because he couldn't stand it? <laughs> you know, so forth. These are the right people and so forth. So I did a lot of checking, talked to members of the families of all but one. I found flight logs, which showed where the big shots, the Air Force generals, was able to prove they indeed had gone someplace at a certain time, certain place. So it's been a chase. We're speaking with Stanton Friedman, of course. We're discussing Roswell and... And all the secrecy that surrounds that, of course. Stanton, how many presidents knew the truth about Roswell? That's a very good question. Don't touch that dial, as they used to say. Coming up, more with Stanton Friedman. We're just getting into the juicy parts. If you miss the next show, you can hear it at www.brenthollandshow.com. See you next time. <laughs> 